Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, fellow time travellers. To see me in the flesh and get your hands on exclusive blasts of history and commentary, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Every week there's new, thought-provoking videos and much more besides. It's Neil Oliver on Patreon and it would be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. To stand in the shadow of Stirling Castle is to be at the centre of the whirling vortex of the storm. The history's just unavoidable. You breathe it in until you almost choke on it. In this podcast, we're on my home turf, walking into a building of jaw-dropping grandeur and beauty, sitting atop a crag and tail left over from our geological past. It's a silver brooch that hitches the highlands of Scotland to her lowlands. It's played a crucial part in the history of Scotland and of the whole of the British Isles. Kings and queens have been born and raised there. Battles fought and scores settled, full of drama and passion. It's a place I know and love well. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week we followed the money together and glimpsed the great wealth and power that flowed through the Hanseatic League. Where are we this week? If I ever need to be reminded of the deep roots uh, that history has in the British Isles, how its tendrils snake underneath the ground we all live on, I come to what I regard as, well, one of my personal touchstones. A place that was already well trodden by our ancestors when the Roman road builders turned up. It's the mesmerising Stirling Castle. We're right on my home patch this week, Paul. I live in Stirling. People probably gathered that by now. Um, And the the topic of the love letter is Stirling Castle, which is the whole whole raison d'etre for Stirling. Stirling is here. Stirling the town, Stirling the city is here because of Stirling Castle. And I've just been out for my... uh, daily dog walk and as usual where I walk my dogs 
for half the walk, I'm kind of looking at Stirling Castle because it's very close by where I live and where I spend my time. Because I knew we were going to be doing the love letter from Stirling Castle this morning, I had another look at it. I look at it all the time. And it just, it just exudes this air of permanence. It's like looking at a mountain. It radiates such a sense of ownership of the landscape. Blink of an eye compared to the geology upon which it sits. But nonetheless, it exudes an air of ownership over the territory. It's like looking up at a big bird of prey or something. It's like a big buzzard, you know, sitting on the rock, looking out over the landscape and pretty much saying, I've been here a while and I've got no intentions of going anywhere. Stirling is a city, technically. I mean, for most people familiar with cities like London and Manchester and Birmingham and Edinburgh and Glasgow, Stirling's small, but it's technically a city. And it's defined really, by what they call the Old Borough Boundary. Once upon a time, hundreds of years ago, the city of Stirling was that which sat behind a wall. Stirling Castle sits up in a plug of volcanic basalt, well, it's quartz dolerite, technically, and people had gathered there. So for centuries, that's where people had built their homes. And there was a city wall enclosing it for defensive purposes. So you've got the castle up on the, on the rock and then out around the base of the castle rock, there's a wall and that defined it. Now, we sit close enough to that old borough boundary in our house, which was built in the 19th century. We are in the happy position of being allowed into Stirling Castle for free. <laughs> Everyone in our postcode and other, other postcodes that are clustered around the rock, that are close enough to the rock. If you go up to the because it's, uh, it's owned by Historic Scotland. Stirling residents, clo- not all Stirling residents, just people within a certain specified area. If you go up with something with your address on it, like a gas bill, <laughs> you just get waved through. So we, in, in the days when we're not locked down, we were in the habit of going there all the time. Go up and wander around the castle because it's such a spectacularly brilliant place. We're just there we were talking about Harlech which is another fantastic castle. Well, Stirling Castle is just, you know, it's, it's for all sorts of reasons. I think Stirling Castle, if you twisted my arm, I would say that Stirling Castle is my favourite. Uh, and, 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 and for all of these aforementioned reasons, we, the Oliver family, we pretty much consider it to be our personal property. <laughs> it's, like our, it's like our family castle. It's a central point around which so much of Scottish and therefore British history rotates. It's like a hub. It's known romantically, familiarly, as the silver brooch that pins the Highlands to the Lowlands. Stirling, for most people, is the gateway to the Highlands. And so Stirling Castle, being what it is, is called the brooch that fixes the Highlands to the Lowlands. And the rock has dominated the landscape for hundreds of millions of years. It's the product of volcanic activity about 300 million years ago, which created a mass of quartz dolerite called the Stirling Sill. And then only tens of thousands of years ago, the last ice age, the glaciers of the last ice age ground like bulldozers through the landscape from the north and heading south. And when they encountered the location of the Stirling Sill, that quartz dolerite was so hard 
it resisted even the ice. And so the, the glaciers kind of broke around it or rode over the top of it. But it meant a wedge of softer material behind the volcanic quartz dolerite was protected. It was like a doorstop, an immovable doorstop. The glaciers hit it from the front and then they, they moved around it and it also left a slope of softer material untouched. And it creates a geological feature called a crag and tail. And they're dotted about the landscape in Scotland. Edinburgh Castle is exactly the same. Edinburgh Castle sits on a crag and tail. And in the case of Edinburgh, the tail, which is the slope of softer material behind the plug, is the Royal Mile. So anyone who's been in Edinburgh and walked up the slope of the Royal Mile up to the castle, same thing exactly, same geological feature, made at the same time by the same Ice Age geological processes. This is the, the landscape feature that Stirling Castle sits upon. For the longest time, right up into the modern era, the middle kind of waistband of Scotland, there was only about nine miles or so, four and a half miles either side of Stirling Castle Rock, that was dry, reliable dry ground all year round. If you went further east and west, it deteriorated into marshy morass, ground that was too soft. If you were going to move, say, lots of cattle or sheep, or indeed an army of men, north and south, you would have headed for Stirling Castle and Stirling Rock because it defined the area that was firm underfoot all year round. And that meant that Stirling was always a focal point in Scottish history because if you held Stirling Rock, then you dominated the sort of main motorway for people moving north and south through the landscape. So it was always important. And... It's been fortified for the longest time. Uh, there's a Roman road that comes to Stirling from the south. You and I know it. We've mentioned it before. We've excavated there, you and I, when we were doing uh, uh, the Battle of Annetburn yeah. many years ago, looking for traces. And we found the Roman road and it's pointed right at the castle. The Romans built that a couple of thousand years ago. As far as we can tell, they didn't bother to put a castle or a fort on the rock. Maybe they did and, and no trace survives or no trace has been found, but it would appear that they didn't bother to do that, although they did build a road pointed right at it for moving north into Scotland. The first person to, to build a castle on top of the rock was, as far as we can tell, was Malcolm Canmore. That's uh, the king, King Malcolm Canmore. Now, that's the same King Malcolm that, for fans of Shakespeare, he's the one that, that kills Macbeth in revenge for Macbeth killing his father, Duncan. So it's Malcolm Canmore in the 11th century, built the first fortification on top of the rock. Canmore means big head, Malcolm Big Head. Do we know what it would have looked like? As is always the case, it would have been a timber fortification to begin with. Maybe heaped earth to create a, a level surface and then a timber palisade and then a, a timber building within. But it was occupied and used ever after. So from the time of Malcolm Canmore, there was always something up there. And gradually what had been timber was replaced with stone. You know, once the technology and the need and the manpower was available. So the first, the first thing that was there, the first structure, the first defensive feature would have been timber. So that it's been there for the longest time. It's been there for a, a thousand years. And because it's been there so long, it has become, as I say, this central point around which so much of Scottish history 
revolves. William Wallace took the trouble to occupy Stirling Castle after the Battle of Stirling Bridge. Uh, Robert Bruce fought the Battle of Bannockburn to get the English out of it, and having got them out, as was his habit, he destroyed Stirling Castle so that the English could never occupy it and use it against them. That was always uh, Robert Bruce's tactic. He knocked down castles so that no invading army could ever use them against them again. Before Robert Bruce, Edward I of England came up and flattened Stirling Castle for his own entertainment. The garrison had already surrendered, but Edward came up and demolished it to make a point and for his own amusement with a massive trebuchet, a gigantic catapult called Warwolf. And, uh, and so he battered Stirling Castle to the ground and then it was rebuilt and then Robert Bruce got hold of it and then he knocked it down. So it's been through this checkered past. King James II, he murdered the Earl of Douglas there. They were two young men. This is in the middle of the 15th century. James II was King of Scotland. He was based at Stirling Castle. He was a bit of a... He was a prickly character. For good reason, because at that time, his Scotland wasn't the Scotland that we recognise as a geographical entity today. He was a sandwich between the territory of the Lordship of the Isles, which was a, almost a kingdom in its own right, based around the Western Isles off the west coast of Scotland. So that was the Lord of the Isles held that. And then to the south, there was a vast swatch of territory controlled by the Douglas family, who were rich and powerful. And always, the king, any king of Scots had to be sort of aware of the Douglas family because they were, they were capable of causing them proper trouble. And so in 1452, uh, word reached King James II that this young Earl of Douglas, William, who was a 21-year-old handsome playboy type, had entered into an agreement with the Lord of the Isles. Just a sort of a, a, a contract of mutual support. But word of this got to the king and he felt threatened. He now felt as if he was trapped between two potential enemies. And so he asked... William, Earl of Douglas, to come to the castle. And the Earl of Douglas wasn't daft because he could see possible trouble ahead. And so he insisted on getting a letter guaranteeing him safe conduct for him and his retinue, which King James duly gave him. You know, don't worry, you'll be fine. Just come and we'll have a chat. So these two young guys, King James is, is 22 at the time. The Earl of Douglas is 21. They've been drinking all day and it comes to dinner time. And King James says, right, I want you to break off your agreement with the Lord of the Isles. The Earl of Douglas won't do it. James draws a knife, sticks it into the Earl of Douglas, into his chest. And on that signal, his men, King James's men, gather round the Earl and stab him multiple times. And in the heat of the moment, the dead Earl's body is flung out of a window, a first floor window, and it, it lands. it lands in what is now known as the Douglas Garden, an area of ground remembered ever since as the scene of this bloody murder. So it was a scandalous thing to have done. The Earl of Douglas's supporters tied the letter of guaranteeing safe conduct to a horse's tail and led it through the town and then destroyed the town. But nonetheless, James prosecuted his, his case, kept the momentum going and, and eventually seized the, the territory of the, of the Douglas family. So that happened in Stirling Castle. 
King James III was born there. He was the one who's uh, murdered after the Battle of Sochiburn nearby. The Battle of Sochiburn happens within sight of Stirling Castle. His own son, King James IV, may have been part of the conspiracy that led up to the murder of, of his father, King James III. James IV is the one who dies at Flodden. We'll get to Flodden in a subsequent love letter to the British Isles. And then there's James V. James V is raised in Stirling Castle. And it's him who basically, James IV and largely James V are responsible for the castle that you see today. King James V married a French woman called Marie de Guise. And in hopes of making her feel more at home in drafty Scotland, in drafty Stirling, he brought over French craftsmen, French artisans, and they built this romantic fairy tale Renaissance palace, which is what you really see on the site of Stirling Castle today. It's the castle built in large part by James V for Marie de Guise. What year was that? Uh, well, it's, it straddles uh, the end of the 15th century, start of the 16th century. One of the buildings that's created there is the Great Hall, the Great Hall of, of Stirling Castle, which, if people come up and see it today, that's the one that you see from a distance. It's clad on the outside with what's called Harl, H-A-R-L, which is like a, a goldish, yellowish lime wash. It glows from a distance. Once upon a time, the whole castle would have been painted in this golden colour, so it would have been highly visible from miles away. So James V was responsible for much of what is there today for Marie de Guise. Where we live in Stirling, which is in the shadow of the castle, really, there are fruit trees in a lot of the gardens, plum trees in particular. And legend has it that they're the descendants, they're the arboreal descendants of plum trees and other fruit trees that were planted in the time of James V because he wanted Marie de Guise to have access to plums and other foodstuffs that she might enjoy. So we've had plum trees and gardens that we've lived in in Stirling, and they're, they're dotted around the landscape. Marie de Guise and James V were the parents of Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, everyone's heard of Mary, Queen of Scots. And her, well, she's got many connections to Stirling and to the castle. But when she was just a little girl, like a toddler, uh, Henry VIII was King of England at the time, and he wanted little Mary four or five years old, to marry his son, who was also just a little boy, Edward, Prince Edward. But Scotland wouldn't give her up. And instead, the Scots hid Mary all around Scotland. And one of the places they hid her was in Stirling Castle. Uh, Henry then conducted what's remembered as the rough wooing. He sent soldiers up to rough up Scotland to try and force Scotland to surrender the little princess. There was murder and there was rape and there was burning, but the Scots wouldn't surrender her. And for a while she was in Stirling Castle, and there's a, if you go up onto the highest battlements of the castle, there's like a little porthole, a little circular window cut through the, the highest stone battlements. It's, it appeared about, it's at knee height, really. You have to look down to see it. And it was put in place, it was cut by masons during the time of, of Little Mary, Queen of Scots, so that she could look out over her, over her kingdom without the possibility of her bright red hair being spotted by anyone in the grounds below. For example, any of Henry VIII's spies, if they had seen a little girl being held up over the castle battlements, they would have known it was Mary. So they created this little porthole for her to look out at. And then, of course, when she's five, Mary's spirited away to France, where she's 
she eventually marries the Dauphin and becomes the, the Queen of France and, you know, Mary's life starts to unfold from that point. So there's just this enormous amount of, of Scottish history dotted around. When Mary comes back as an adult, she's the Queen of Scotland. She's been Queen of France, now she's Queen of Scots. She's a very desirable wife for the crowned heads of Europe. You know, if they can get access to, to Mary, they've got access to sort of a dynastic dynamite. But Mary, in due course, marries Darnley, who's one of the Lennox Stuarts. He's part of the Stuart contingent of, of Scottish nobility. And they have a son who becomes King James VI, who becomes James I of England. On the death of Elizabeth I, James, James VI of Scotland, and at the same time, James I of England, he becomes for the first time the King of the Combined Thrones. But uh, he's christened in the Chapel Royal inside Stirling Castle. Now, Mary's a Catholic. Scotland by that time was a Protestant country and she insisted on his christening being under Catholic rites. So he was given a, a Catholic christening. It was a, a very grand affair. It was the, the very first fireworks display in Scotland. It happened over Stirling Castle because it was part of the celebrations of the christening of, of the little prince. The priest conducting his christening ought by tradition to have spat into the baby's mouth. That was part of the tradition, but Mary forbade it. And it didn't happen, but nonetheless, it was a full Catholic ceremony. So you get a sense that Stirling Castle and Scottish history are woven so tightly together. So as you're walking around the battlements, you're literally breathing in history. Yeah, I mean, if you stand up on the esplanade of Stirling Castle, you're looking out over iconic Scottish scenery. I mean, for one thing, you're looking towards another crag and tail, which is called Abbey Craig, and it's the site nowadays of the Wallace Monument, which is a great needle of pale stone, a great tower that commemorates William Wallace. It's the National Wallace Monument. Then there are the hills behind, there's the River Forth, which winds lazily through the landscape there. And you're looking out over some of the most iconic Scottish scenery. The battlefield of Sochiburn is down there. The Battle of Stirling Bridge is down there. The Battle of Bannockburn is down there. The Battle of Sheriff Muir, which is one of the battles of the Jacobite rebellions, is within sight of Stirling Castle. Stirling is a corruption of a Gaelic word that means the place of strife. So many were the battles that were fought in the shadows of Stirling Castle that you know, Stirling takes on the name Thrulia, which is the, the place of strife. For anyone who's interested in Scottish history, really, if you're interested in British history, to stand in the shadow of Stirling Castle is to be at the centre of the whirling vortex of the storm. The depth of history in this one place is so deep then. Yes, the, it's part of the fascination about the whole of the British Isles, for me, is that visible depth of history. Scotland and England are very old countries. Now, that sounds like a funny thing to say, because, you know, if you look at a, a world map, you know, you think, well, they've just always been there, haven't they? The, the planet is four and a half billion years old. How can one country be older than another? But the fact remains... I mean, Germany, for example, as we understand it, has only been 
the country that it is today since 1870, 1871. Italy wasn't pulled together into the geographical entity that we all know as Italy until about the same time. And other European countries that people fly in and out of today are similarly recent by comparison. There's been an entity calling itself and understanding itself as Scotland for a thousand years. And likewise, an England and a Wales. The, The countries of the Long Island of Britain have had an understanding of themselves as places on the world stage for a thousand years. And that's just the human history. That's just a fraction of the human history, that thousand years. And it's made all the more intoxicating in a place like Stirling because you've got this thousand-year-old castle, this structure that's not much younger than Scotland itself, but it's sat upon an iconic rock that was forged 300 million years ago under the Earth's surface. It was only revealed by the subsequent ice ages. There is an unmistakable, palpable sensation to be had from being on a fortification that has roots that are a thousand years deep, sat upon a geological feature that's 300 million years old, and it reigns supreme over a landscape that is peppered with yet more of the relatively recent human history of Scotland and of Britain. And if you're someone like me who gets something from being somewhere that things happened, Stirling Castle's among the places that are as good as that sensation ever gets. You stand there and you you know you and from Stirling Castle you can sally forth and you can go to the battlefield of Bannockburn. You know, you can go to nearby Cambus Kenneth Abbey, which we've talked about. You know, and that abbey is why Abbey Craig is called Abbey Craig. That crag and tail that's got the Wallace National Monument on it is in honour of, of the abbey at Cambus Kenneth. And Cambus Kenneth is the safe place of Kenneth. He's another king who fights a battle that's commemorated. And, and when you stand on the Esplanade at Stirling Castle, you're looking out at all of that. You can sort of reach out and touch it almost. And so for people that are interested in making a pilgrimage to places in the landscape where history happened... Well, it's so thick around Stirling Castle, you have to sort of bat it away from your face, like midges. <laughs> the history's just unavoidable. You breathe it in until you almost choke on it. Is there a particular part of the castle you're drawn to more than others? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We uh, the the Renaissance Palace, for example, the, the, that part, that those those apartments that were built by James V for Marie de Guise, uh, around the outside of them, there are statues of figures, and one of the figures is supposed to be James V himself. They're worn now and and eroded by the weather of all those centuries, but in the day when they were freshly carved, they were painted. So James V and all the rest of these figures, figures from from legend and myth, are all there, and they were they were all being painted in bright colours. The buildings themselves would have been you know painted bright in this harl, which would have it's like Disneyland for the people of the poor timber and turf dwellings around you know, where the ordinary people lived. To look up at Stirling Castle would have been extraordinary. 
the grandeur of it, the Great Hall, when that was built and for a long time thereafter it was the largest indoor space in Scotland. It's famous for this hammer beam roof, a roof of massive oak beams built without a single nail. So people will proudly tell you. Uh, for, for a long time, Stirling Castle was the regimental headquarters of the Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, a regiment of the British Army. And they were there for they were there for the longest time and they had the inside of, of the Great Hall was, was part of where they had their accommodations. But then when they moved out, it was all restored. And it's now back to looking exactly as it would have done during the time of King James. And the royal apartments, likewise, they were the subject about 10 or 11 years ago of a massive refurbishment, costing tens of millions of pounds. More French artisans were brought over to do the carpentry and to do everything properly the way it had been done originally. So it's now back to all these bright living colours. You know, so in many ways, it's not like visiting an old place. It's by no stretch of the imagination like a ruin. It's a building that has been brought back to the life it would have known in the 16th century. So, so the walls are brightly painted and the ceilings are brightly painted and there's furniture. You know, there's four-poster beds and there's chests of drawers and there's, there's all the soft furnishings and tapestries that would have been there at the time. So to go there now is to step back into that 15th, 16th century world. I mean, when you say what are my favourite places, you walk into a courtyard... When you walk into the castle proper, it surrounds you on four sides, like a great square. When you look up at the main frontage of part of the building, it's where they filmed Colditz, the the you know the television series from the 1970s? Well, that, it, served as, it served as Colditz. So for buffs of, of classic, iconic TV series, Castle Colditz was filmed in Stirling Castle because the masonry lent itself the proper aged look that the producer and the director were after for the, for the look of Castle Colditz. A castle whose roots go from ancient history to popular culture via iconic moments in the 16th century. Yes, you can walk out onto the bathrooms and look through the little porthole that Mary, Queen of Scots, would have looked through when she was a baby. You know, you can, you can look at the circle defined by the masonry that was exactly the same as that which was known as the little girl that grew up to be Mary, Queen of Scots. One of the most romantic figures of the whole of British history. There's the Douglas Garden, you know, where the corpse of the murdered Earl of Douglas was flung from a window, you know, and his body was landed and collected there by his people subsequently. But, you know, that's remembered now as the Douglas Garden. The Great Hall would have seen the, the feasting and the and the ceremonies of kings and queens down through the centuries, it's all still there. Of all the figures, though, James IV, you know, we will come to James IV in the next Love Letter to the British Isles, but he was such a romantic figure. You know, he was tall, dark and handsome. Women loved him. Men wanted to be him. He was a Renaissance man. He was well-read. He took the trouble to entertain an individual from history called John Damien, who was an alchemist. He was one of these people that said that with the right funding, he could transform base metals into gold. And James had John Damien to stay, put up with him in the castle and funded his research. And of course, no gold was ever made from base metal, but John Damien then said that he could fly. So he, he had constructed for himself a pair of wings, feathered wings, 
And while James and the rest of the royals watched, John Damien stood on the castle battlements with his wings on and leapt out into space and then fell. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, and landed in a dung heap and broke his leg but survived. In every way that matters, it's the structure that was envisioned and built by James V for his Queen Mary de Guise, the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots. And it's redolent of, it reeks of that time. The centuries have left it alone. It's still the castle that it always was. And so if you can allow your imagination to let you be carried back into the past, then you can do it with ease at Stirling Castle. old alliance drawing a nation to arms. A husband locked in mortal combat with his wife's brother. An experienced commander, old and toughened by years of war. A renaissance king. Formidable pikes, cannon fire, slaughter and an arrow to the face. A mighty army and its leaders cut down. A nation diminished. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places, and it's published by Trans World. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.